Our second scripture passage is from the book of Romans chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, the word of the Lord. Ropes courses. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with ropes courses or rock climbing or rappelling, but um, years ago, and I do mean years ago, I had opportunity to do a lot of them, different camps I was a part of, leading wilderness trips. And one of the things you find when you're on ropes courses, those high ropes courses that are 50 feet up in the air, 100 feet up in the air, well, more like 50, but people feel like they're 100, is that as as people get on them, you find that there are two kinds of people that get on them. Well, actually, there's a whole lot of people that just get on them and go through it. But then there are the karate kid types, and there are the jackhammer types. And I don't know if you guys fall into either one of those. So what are they like? Well, it's like this, right? The karate kid type is the kid who gets up there and feels like he can do anything. He's totally unafraid. He's up there doing that little like karate kid kick while he's standing on a rope about 50 feet up in the air. Then he goes to the next thing and does a cartwheel and wants to show off how brave he is. He has no fear of falling at all. Totally unafraid of the heights. And then you have the jackhammer kid. The jackhammer kid is the one who gets up there and the first step he takes, his leg starts going like this. And then the next one like this. And he wonders why the wires are shaking. They're like, no, the wires aren't shaking. You are shaking. And you're shaking all of the wires, so stop shaking your legs. One kid has ultimate confidence, no fear. He's totally trusting in the rope system. He's trusting that, hey, the ropes are strong and the belays are strong, and he's going to get clipped in. And basically, if he falls off the ropes, if he falls off of the rock cliff, he'll be caught. 
He has no fear. The other kid has a lot of fear. He doesn't trust the ropes, the knots, the people that put them up, the anchors, the belays, any of the little metal apparatus. He figures it's all going to break. Now, what matters? What matters is not whether you have uber confidence or shaky fear. What matters as you step out onto that rope or belaying off of that cliff is the strength of the ropes. What matters is the strength of the knots and the anchors and the carabiners. In other words, it is the object of your faith, not the amount or fervency of your faith that matters. What is your faith in? So the question we're asking at a very basic is, what do you believe? And how does a person actually believe in the first place? Now, my argument starts with this. Everyone has religious beliefs. Every single person has religious beliefs. Everyone is a believer. Now, I'm defining religious beliefs this way. A religious belief is an unprovable assumption about the way things are or should be. A religious belief is an unprovable assumption about the way things are or should be. And I would argue that every single person lives on the basis of some set of beliefs, faith assumptions, that are not empirically provable or objectively true. Every single person lives on the basis of some set of faith assumptions or religious beliefs. Even an atheist lives on the basis of faith assumptions. Why? Well, an atheist assumes there is no spiritual realm, there is no eternity, and there is no deity. They say this because empirically they can't observe it. They don't observe the spiritual realm, they don't observe eternity, they don't observe God. Therefore, he must not exist. But it's an argument from absence. They can't actually prove that God doesn't exist. It's a belief that they hold. And as Pascal, the 17th century mathematician, philosopher, and ultimately theologian argued, it takes as much if not greater faith to believe that there is not a God than to believe that there is. The way that he went about it is this. He said, look, if somebody is a Christian and believes in God, they go about living their life as if God exists, and then at the end of their life, they're either right or wrong. The same is true with an atheist who goes about living their life as if there is no God, and at the end of their life, they're either right or wrong. And Pascal made this wager. He said, look, it makes more sense to buy into the God thing. Why? Because at the end of the day, the Christian, the believer, has everything to gain and nothing to lose. So they've lived their whole life believing in God. At the end of their life, heaven. The atheist has nothing to gain but everything to lose. Because at the end of their life, if they're right, great, everyone dies. But if they're wrong, so Pascal said, look, it takes actually more faith to take that dangerous bet. Ultimately, an atheist has beliefs that are based on assumptions that he or she cannot prove. We see this, too, in the way modern secular morality plays out. 
See, modern secular morality, the, the morality of our current culture without a faith in God, is based on faith assumptions. So let me give you an example. Everyone knows, everyone knows for sure that some things are just wrong, okay? Rape, murder, oppressing the weak and marginalized, they are wrong. But from a secular point of view, on what basis are they wrong? The secular view of human existence, how we got here, is it's random and accidental. Life on earth is random and accidental. How we got here, random and accidental. Therefore, there is no meaning or purpose. And the reason that we look like we do with the whole opposable thumbs thing is natural selection and survival of the fittest. So if that's your view of existence, purely that, then on what grounds is subjecting races or genocide wrong? Because you actually can't argue that it might not be natural selection playing itself out. Right? Why did the humans without the opposable thumbs die out? Maybe they are false attempts at putting down the wrong parts of the species. Africans, Jews, you name the next category. But maybe we'll get it right eventually by natural selection. We'll realize that what you really need to do is get rid of everyone whose IQ is below 70. Well, let's make it 80, to be fair. Now, of course, that's absurd. It's absurd to argue something like that, but, but from a purely secular point of view, there is no such thing as objective truth. You may feel it's wrong to commit genocide, and you may even make the argument that it's not good for the survival of the species, but you can't know it for sure, and you can't prove it from any evidence that you can stand on firmly. It may just be natural selection happening. It's basically a religious belief to say that some things are wrong or some things are right. It's a religious belief that's unprovable. Now, the belief that genocide and murder and rape is wrong, I agree with, but from a very different perspective. I start from the perspective of God the Creator that gives life and truth to that knowledge. And that's why I think every human being thinks those things are wrong as well. Because deep down in, there is more to them than just what they observe. The question is this, then. The question is not, are you a believer? If we're talking about belief, the question is not, are you a believer, but rather, in what do you believe? In what do you believe? Does what you believe in make sense of all aspects of life? In other words, does it have intellectual integrity and coherence? And to build off of the metaphor, is it a strong enough rope? Is it an anchor that will hold? In other words, is it actually true? In Romans 10, Paul is addressing the Israelites, the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And what he argues is Israel had very earnest beliefs, very authentic beliefs about God, but their faith was not in Christ and not in the gospel. And this is an argument that's built from Romans 9 all the way through Romans 11 about the people of Israel and God's faithfulness. And it's built around this idea of righteousness, meaning 
being made right with God or being justified in our existence? How is one made right with God? How is one justified? And the problem for Israel, Paul argues, is that they're clinging to the wrong rope and they have a bad anchor. We see this in a couple verses we didn't read at the end of Romans 9. In verse 31 and 32, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Their trust in being made right before God was on the basis of fulfilling the law, doing the works that God laid out for them, rather than on faith. Basically, their whole way of being made right with God was holding really tightly to the rope. It was the strength of their grip they were depending on, not the strength of the rope itself. And then in chapter 10, Paul goes on to say, I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that is the gospel, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness through faith in Christ. In other words, they were building their entire lives on something that was not anchored. It was on the basis of what they were doing, how they were performing, and not what Christ had done. Israel, the Jewish nation, at that time had earnest faith, very earnest faith, and they were actually also very good people, very moral and upright people. But Paul argues they needed the gospel. And I would say many Christians do too, or rather many people who say that they're Christians. Because when it comes down to it, our lives are not much different. We live seeking to justify our own existence on the basis of what we do or how we're performing. So we may say we trust in Christ, but we try to add to it with our good parenting or how we're performing in school or how we're measuring up with our own view of what's good and what's wrong. I need Christ plus my actions. And when we do that, we don't trust the gospel fully. It's like Peter losing sight of Jesus as he's walking on the water, trying to figure out his own way to swim and stay afloat, rather than just looking to Christ, knowing that he will keep you on top. Christians, or people who call themselves Christians, either do not fully get the gospel or we wrestle with trusting it fully. And that's why we talk about being a gospel-driven church, wanting the grace of God, the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ to permeate everything we do. And it's why week in and week out, you're gonna hear me mentioning, talking about, explaining the basic gospel message because I think we so easily lose sight of it. And ultimately, it's because what we believe in, what we believe in matters. So what are we meant to believe in? Paul gives us his version of the gospel in a couple of verses here. In verse 4, he lays out the gospel for the Jew. He says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then he goes on to say in verses 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. To break that apart pretty quickly, verse 4 basically says Christ put an end, Christ put an end to righteousness by 
religiousness or law obedience or being good. Those are not ways to be justified and made right with God. And verse 9 and 10, the gospel says, he died and was raised for us. Jesus bore our judgment. He defeated sin and death for us, and he is Lord. Jesus is the one true God, not other things we can put our trust in. He alone is the one who saves. What is it that we are to believe in? Let me break it down a little more simply, almost summarizing these verses. Three words, if you're going to say, what should I believe in? I believe that I am a sinner. I believe that I am a sinner. I am separated from God. I am inherently sinful, and I cannot save myself. I cannot save myself. That's everyone. I am a sinner. But I also believe in a Savior. I believe in a Savior that Jesus fully saved me. When he hung on the cross and said, it is finished, then that means nothing more needs to be done. It is by grace that I am saved. Salvation is a gift from God because of Christ's death for me. Full stop. I believe that I am a sinner. I believe in the Savior. And I believe that he is Lord. He is Lord. Christ Jesus Christ is not just my Savior, He is actually God. He is my God, my Lord. And that means He needs to have lordship over everything in my life, over every aspect of my life, over every priority, over every decision. Every part of my life falls to His lordship. This is the gospel. I am a sinner, He is my Savior, He is my Lord. This gospel is the object of our trust, the strong and anchored rope, what we believe in. But how do we believe? Well, that's a little bit harder, actually, I've, I've found. How do you receive the gospel? How do you receive this good news? How does it become yours? Paul gives it to us a bunch of places in the book of Romans. It's basically by faith, right? We say this. It's by faith that you come to that the gospel becomes your good news. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It is to be received by faith. It depends on faith. We are justified by faith. The catechism, which is this uh, Anglican catechism that we've been using as a basis for this sermon series, puts it this way. How should you respond to the gospel of to the gospel, I should repent of my sins, which we talked about last week, and put faith, put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. And what does it mean for you to have faith? To have faith means that I believe the gospel is true. So I believe that. I acknowledge that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. I entrust myself to him as my Savior, and I obey him as my Lord. Or as Romans 10.9 says, we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart. How do you receive the gospel? An inner earnestness and an outer manifestation. That's how you believe. 
It sounds easy, but if you have wrestled with faith, if you've wrestled with doubts, if you're not quite sure, you recognize it's actually not that easy to, to just believe. What does that actually mean? I've had people ask me, okay, you talk about believing in God, describe that. What does it really mean? How does it look? Well, let's break down some of what Paul says in Romans 10, 9 and see if we can get a little better glimpse at what it looks like to actually believe so that we, whether we're coming to faith or trying to continue in our faith, can continue to do it day in and day out. So one of the things it says is, if you confess with your mouth, if you confess with your mouth, God raised him from the dead. That confess part, confess with your mouth, Paul puts that in there basically saying there's an external part to you, that your faith needs to be with other people. In other words, faith is not a private affair. Your religion is not a private affair when it comes to Christianity. Relationships like the church are integral to authentic saving faith. There's a place for publicly affirming that you believe in Christ, whether that's in front of an entire congregation or just with a few people. Because when you make it verbal and public in any way, it actually becomes tangible. It becomes real. It's why parents never make promises, because they know as soon as their kid hears the promise, it has to happen. Because kids know that a promise verbalized is already real. So smart parents never make promises. You tell your faith, you declare it, you affirm it, because that makes it real. Otherwise, the doubts continue to creep in. And, and it's also because, look, this confess with your mouth, this public outward thing, it's in community where we struggle with our doubts and our skepticism and our questions. It's where we learn and grow and learn from each other how to grow. And honestly, it's in relationship that we experience our faith. I very often experience the grace and mercy of God through fellow believers and their presence in my life. And it's why we gather in corporate worship. It's why we call you to get into small groups of five or eight or ten people. And it's why ultimately you need to have friends, one or two or ten friends who believe these things that are a part of building you up and tying you in. It's why we do confirmation and adult baptisms. It's a chance to confess with your mouth. That is integral to saving faith. But you need more than the external show, the confession of the mouth. Judas, I'm pretty sure, had the confession of the mouth and the external look of a disciple. But something was missing in Judas, just as it probably is with some who come in here looking great. It's the internal and authentic belief. Paul says, the second half of this verse, not just confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, but believe in your heart. I mean, it's not that, yeah, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. Not just confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. So as I've mentioned here before, that word heart is a strange Christianese sort of word. What does that actually mean? Does that mean believe in that little muscle inside of your chest that pumps blood everywhere? No, you know that, right? The, the heart is a way of talking about the center of you, the you that is you. And where do you process your heart? 
it's actually in your brain that you process it. It's in your reasoning and your feelings and your decision. It's your will, your root desires, and your self-understanding. And this means that when you believe in your heart, when you believe something in your heart, it affects you. So believing your heart is not knowing something like you know, you know, math or like you know baseball stats or you know lyrics to a Justin Timberlake song. It's not knowing something just because you know it. It's knowing something in such a way that it affects the core of you. Believing in your heart are the things that you know that shape and change you. So what might this look like in other areas of life, not even talking about Christianity or faith? Let's think about it for a second. It's the idea that there's something that you hear about or know or think that begins to affect the very center of you and change your life. So let's suggest this. Let's say, uh, believing in your heart, you, you hear this message. You hear this message. Your spouse has one month to live. If you hear that message... You may deny it and avoid it at first, but once it sinks in and you realize it is true and you believe it in your heart, it's going to affect you. Your priorities, your dreams and hopes, your very life will change from the moment you believe it to be true. You will never be the same. Or, here's another one, if you think you are ugly... If you think you are ugly, even if you are beautiful, by every cultural or external standard, you will live out of what you believe in your heart. You will live with inferiority and insecurity, move to things like eating disorders and a lot of self-loathing. Because if you believe it in your heart, it will shape you. Belief in the heart is a conviction regarding what I think is true that is central to me, affecting my, my self-understanding and my will and my desires. It affects who I am and how I live. Let me say that again. When you believe something in your heart, it is a conviction regarding what I think to be true that is central to me, affecting my self-understanding my will and my desires. It transforms, affects, and changes who I am and how I live. So if we're going to take this now to the gospel, believing in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, believing in your heart in the gospel means Jesus Christ becomes the centering conviction of the you that's you. Christ reorients everything from your self-understanding to how you live. And the good news is this. It's for everyone. It's available to anyone. In verse 13, Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, anyone, all or any. Paul is affirming that it doesn't matter if you were a Jew or Gentile, if you were a pagan or you were religious, if you've done all the right things or all the wrong things, 
Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's nothing you can do or have done that Christ hasn't already paid for in his death on the cross. There's nothing you can add or need to do that Christ hasn't already done in his death on the cross. So as you hear this, this it's available to everyone, as you hear the call of the gospel, I would argue for you and for me, don't listen to what others say about you. Don't listen to what others say about you with regard to God, that you're the farthest person from having faith, that, you know, you've done a lot of bad things. You need to kind of get yourself right, make payment first, become a better person. Then, then maybe you'll be okay for God. Don't listen to what others say about you. But also don't listen to what you say about you. You're too dirty. If people really knew what you've thought or done, there's no way God's going to love you. Don't listen to what others say or what you say. Listen to what God says about you through his spirit in your heart. This is the day of Pentecost, and the promise of God through Jesus was that when he died and rose again and ascended into heaven, he would send his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God with us. In Joel 2, it's promised, and on the day of Pentecost, it happens. The Spirit of God is poured out on all who believe in Christ so that they can call on the name of the Lord. It's actually the Spirit of God begins working in your heart even before you come to faith in Christ. It enables your faith in Christ. And now when we enter into faith in Christ, the Spirit of God takes up residence in us. The Bible says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't need a building to dwell in. He has you. God wants to be with you, drawing you to him. This Spirit, this Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God and is the Spirit of truth. If you're wrestling with doubts or understanding, the Spirit will guide you into all truth, meaning the gospel. That's what Jesus said in John 16. Pray, seek God through His Spirit. And if you don't even know what to pray, trust that the Spirit of God will intervene on your behalf, as Paul says in Romans 8. The Spirit will give life to us. We are all spiritually dead and need resurrection. You can't make yourself better. But the Spirit of God entering will give life to that deadness in your soul. As he says in Romans 8, 11, so that we can be born anew, as he says in John 3. Don't listen to the other voices or even your own. Hear God speaking to you. And know this, God is near you. God is nearer than you think. Paul writes, the word, this is verse 8, the word, meaning the gospel or Christ, is near to you, in your mouth and in your heart. Paul is arguing, you don't need to dive to the depths of the sea. You don't need to climb up into the heavens. There's nothing you need to do. There's no, there's no religious journey you need to go on. Righteousness, salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, being made right with God and eternity with Him and new life in Him is readily acceptable, accessible. You just need to accept it. It's right there. The fact that you are here on a Sunday morning means that God has been drawing you. 
and continues to draw you in your life. And you can see that over the course of your life. He is near. And as he says in Revelation 3, Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. I stand at the door and knock. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I stand at the door and knock. If you build a great building, then I'll come to you. If you make a great table of food, then I'll show up. If you clean up the house, then I'll come in. Nope. Just open the door. Some of us need to do that for the first time. Some of us need to recognize the constant opening and closing of the door that we live in on a daily basis. The faith that saves, the faith that saves, is not for the strong in faith only. It's simply trust, however shaky, in the strong anchor and rope of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. As we pray this morning, closing out this word of God to us, I'm going to pray a prayer of repentance and faith that's in the catechism. It's a prayer even to come to faith or renew your faith. You can say it after me in your head if you want to. Lord Jesus Christ, I confess my faults, shortcomings, sins, and rebellious acts, and ask you to forgive me. I embrace you, Lord Jesus, as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for your atoning death on the cross in obedience to your Father's will to put away my sins. And I enthrone you, Lord Jesus, to be in charge of every part of my life. And I ask you to indwell and empower me with your Holy Spirit so that I may live as your faithful follower from now on. Amen. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. speaks and listening to his voice new life the dead receive the mournful broken hearts rejoice the 